You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. As previously mentioned, we're coming up on our 50th episode, so excited about that. We have some great interviews coming up, as well as some terrific guest interviews, so stay tuned for those. Uh, We're also looking for millionaires to be on the show. If you're interested in being on, if you're interested in unveiling and and discussing your net worth and your financial story, then feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We're specifically looking for those that uh, make below six figures in income. We had Jeff the custodian on making 40K. He was able to reach millionaire status, and we had some terrific feedback about that. And so we're trying to get more of those interviews on the show. So feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to have you on. As always, we have some investment opportunities coming up. Uh, Returns have been great. Track record with those we're partnering with has been uh, expansive. And we have deals with a couple different groups catering to those who either favor cash flow more consecutively or more of a build-out appreciation model. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask the millionaires that we interview, please feel free to reach out. We're happy to include those. We like to ask new questions, mix things up, keep keep all the listeners entertained, and, and make sure we're all learning something new. So if you, if you want to be on the show or have any questions, feel free to reach out. Our email, again, is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. So on today's episode, we have Coach Carson, and he has a new book that just came out called Retire Early with Real Estate. And he's a guest interview. We get into all sorts of great, great content about how he kind of built his real estate portfolio with single family rentals that kind of went into some larger properties uh, from basically the day he graduated college. And now he, he spends his time spending a little bit of his time doing real estate, but spends the majority of his time with his family. In fact, he just got back from a trip from Ecuador. So we talk about that. We talk about different strategies he's used. Uh, over the years to to manage his insurance costs, which is something that all entrepreneurs, especially full-time real estate investors, uh, have to think about how he deals with property management on a day- daily basis and how he was able to structure his business with his business partners so that he was able to take a, a 17-month uh, trip to Ecuador with his family. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview with Chad. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Today on the show, we've got a special guest. We have got Coach Chad Carson. Coach Carson, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background, kind of where you started, and then uh, kind of you know give us a little detail about your book before we uh, before we begin? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Uh, my my background is I've been an entrepreneur for about sixteen years, and all in the realm of real estate. And it was not exactly intentional at first. I was I graduated from college, and my sort of where I was at that point when I graduated, I was Clemson University in South Carolina was, was my my school, and I played football there. And so I had a college scholarship and did was really busy with that and had dreams of maybe playing in the NFL, but that sort of deflated and fell flat right afterwards. And uh, and so I was also a biology major, and so I was thinking, you know, I would go, I was applying to med schools and I was really interested in that topic. 
but I was just sort of burned out from just doing, spending so much time with football and different things. And so I said, I'm just going to take a break. I don't have a lot to lose. I don't have any college debt. Um, and I had, I was lucky enough to have some family members who had rental properties and worked in real estate investing. And so I just got the itch to say, you know what, I'm just going to try to do my own thing and try to learn how to flip some houses or find good deals in real estate. And no matter what, even if I fall flat on my face, this is something I can probably use once I get a real job and start doing like normal things later on. And as it turns out, you know, long story short, I, it, it wasn't easy at first, but uh, I was able to make some money and grow and eventually start flipping bigger houses. And I got a business partner and the two of us have been doing business together for 16 years and sort of just compounded that into long-term buy and hold, primarily smaller residential units and have been able to generate uh, regular income from those now. So I can live off of those and, and travel and I have two young kids now. And so my wife and I like to travel and, and enjoy other places. And we actually just went to, uh, just got back from Ecuador in Cuenca, Ecuador for 17 months and that was our sort of big, just like, can we do this? Can we just take off and live off of income and not have to be local anymore? That was a big test for us. And we just had a great time and our kids learned to speak Spanish. And so that's sort of our, you know, in a nutshell, what, what my story has been as an entrepreneur so far. That's awesome. So where, where did the inspiration come from, from this book that you're about to release? Right. Yes. Yeah, so you know, as, as I went along, like, you know, I think each of us has a, a very specific kind of unique path. And what I was interested in, though, is like taking a step back and saying, like, I've, I've been using real estate to build wealth. I've been using it to produce income and be able to retire early to be able to live. Off. What I mean by that is being able to just live off your income and not have to work a job if you don't want to. And so, but I became interested in what other, how other people did it. And I became interested in sort of the, the processes and the principles that had worked for me. And so as I stepped back from that, I've been writing a blog for a while just to sort of help my own, in my own mind, formulate some of these strategies, you know, like what, what did I use to build wealth? Like what techniques worked, which ones didn't. And, and so I started asking a lot of questions and interviewing people. And so the book sort of came out as a culmination of that. And I, I look at it sort of like a strategy guide. Like I, I, I go by coach because I used to play sports and I just like the idea of having like a playbook or a sort of big picture guide. And so I, I start with the premise that, all right, you want to achieve financial independence or you want to build a certain amount of wealth so you can live off of your wealth. All right, if you're, you're kind of at the bottom of a mountain and this, this book is like a strategy guide saying, all right, here are the primary paths up that mountain to build wealth and to use real estate. And here are some examples of people who have used those paths and here are the good and the bad of it. And here are some examples. And so I tried to give sort of like the, the playbook for the strategy guide for if you just want to start and learn how to use real estate to build wealth and then live off of it, you know, here, here's some examples and here's sort of the strategy to do that. Good stuff. And we'll get into the, into the book and the details of the book here in a bit. But I want to go back. What was that like when you were in college and, you, and you're getting ready to do your first deal? Maybe take us back to your mindset and, and kind of what that first deal was like. How'd you find it? How'd you get involved? Right. I was, I was not very experienced in, in, in business. I, I, my father had, like, had me and my brother when we were in middle school. He would drop us off at one of his old foreclosure houses that he bought, like at the courthouse steps, and it would be nasty and be in the middle of the summer in Georgia. And so, I, like he would, he would say, "All right, Chad, go clean out this refrigerator. I'll be back in three or four hours." And it would just be nasty, you know, just old rundown places that he fixed up and turned around. So I really didn't like real estate, but that's all I knew about it. But when I got into it, like it was a little overwhelming to know that, all right, I don't have all the money, I don't have the net worth, I don't even have a right regular job to about to have credit to go out and get loans. 
And so I had to be very creative and also strategic where I basically took the very front part of the real estate funnel. I looked at, you know, when you have a a funnel of real estate, you have to buy the property, you've got to fix it up, you've got to manage it, uh, you've got to get it either rented or sold. And so I I looked at that and I said, right, the very first part, the, the front part of that funnel is the sort of the bottleneck where you have to find the deals and actually acquire them and find good leads. And so what I did was just studied, I went to some classes, I read some books and said, I'm gonna get really good at this little tiny slice at the front of the business, which is basically getting leads for for potential deals. And we called that a bird dog at the time in, in Georgia where, where I grew up, you know, like a bird dog was like a hunting dog that would go, they didn't know how to what to do with the bird, but they just like pointed at it and said, all right, there it is, like somebody else go get it. And that's basically what I did. I became a bird dog where I would just get good at sniffing out deals for people who had money and they would buy the deal, pay me a small finder's fee. And I was able to learn the business without having all the capital, without having the know-how management infrastructure. And it, you know, I did that for about a year and I got enough of a foundation under me of knowledge that I then was, I was confident enough to start the business with my business partner. And we uh, still bought the deals just like I did before, but then we were able to raise some private capital from some private lenders who had some self-directed IRAs and from the local bank and sort of cobbled together some money that, so we could start uh, doing the, the deals on our own. Okay, so you spent you spent the first little bit as, as a bird dog, as you call it, and I think that's that term's still relevant. How did you acquire the knowledge to know what you were doing as a bird dog? I think, yeah, I mentioned a couple classes. Like, I kept it really simple, luckily. Um, I, I basically, a lot of what I was looking for were deals that either uh, an investor could flip. So by, it was 2003 and four, and which is interesting because the market was starting, starting to heat up from sort of the doldrums after the tech bubble in 2001. And so people were buying and flipping houses and it was getting hot again and getting competitive. And so like I, all I did was just figure out, all right, here's one formula. I knew if uh, most flippers that I was talking to would want to have about 70% of the full after repair value. Uh, that's all they wanted to have invested. And so I knew that I would have to go roughly estimate like the value, roughly estimate the repairs. And I wasn't that good at it at the time. And then, and then I would just have to make an offer on a property a little bit lower than what, than what, I would, uh, what they would want to buy it for. So I just got like a basic formula that I lo- picked up in a class and a couple books. And I did the same thing for landlords. You know, I didn't have a real good understanding, not having any rental properties, you know, what those numbers were. But I just, you know, got some basic formulas. And really all the, the main value I brought was just hustle. And what, what I've learned even today is that there's so many people who have money who are interested in buying deals. But me as like an entrepreneur, hustler, go out and just hit the pavement, knocking on doors, talking to realtors, there are not as many of those people who will just go out and like find the deals for people. And if you can find a, an interesting deal, if you have a good network and you build that network together, there's plenty of people who will buy those deals from you and you can make money on them. Good stuff. So how many units do you have now? We, but so between my business partner and I, so we're 50, 50 partners, we have 90, approximately 90. We actually just sold one. So I need to go back and see what we really have, but that's 90 front doors. And most of those are uh, college student rentals. We're in Clemson, South Carolina. So they're like, you know, I have a 12 unit building and a fourplex and a lot of duplexes. Um, and then another piece of our portfolio is just single family houses, regular kind of mom and pop normal rentals. So we have sort of a mix between those two. And give us just kind of an average profile. What are those rent for and, and kind of what's your cash flow, you know, overall on, on an average rental that you have? The, the student rentals are, 
the average about $650 a month. And that's like the, the profile of that would be like a two bedroom, one bath, uh, usually older apartments. Like we have a range in Clemson where we are, the it's, it's all price per bedroom is the way most landlords and most tenants look at, look at it. And so like the brand new stuff that's right close to campus, like the premier kind of things might be eight or $900 per bedroom. And we are, you know, at 650 a month on a two bedroom apartment, you know, we're about 325 per bedroom. So we like to be a nice quality product, but on the lower end, usually existing housing. And then we fix those up and and try to rent to grad students or to people who are not trying to, they don't have a ton of money. They're just trying to get, work through college. And we just find those tenant, that tenant base is more attractive for us. And the the cap rates that we're typically, you know, it's a little bit harder in, up, in a tighter market, but to get these, but we're usually in the eight to 10% uh, cap rate range is what we, we will shoot for. And our financing on those deals depends on, on the deal. But, you know, we're, we're, you know, if we can get that kind of cap rate with the cost of funds where we are, we can usually cash flow those pretty well. And are you, are you aiming at 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks a door on cash flow? Yeah, yeah, I have a min. I mean, you, minimum hundred bucks a door. Okay. Like if we can't, if we couldn't do that, um, but I, you know, I, I try to do cap rates as my my primary like primary metric because you know because our financing structure changes. So like I might have a deal that has no cash flow up front because we used acquisition financing and that might be reasonable for a year or two and then we refinance later on and now make a lot of cash flow. So it's uh, I, I feel like. Sometimes the cap rate is overlooked as a, or the return on asset, whatever you want to call that, is overlooked as the main metric because because the financing financing determines a lot of your cash flow. And so I, I look at both. Like I, I like all of those metrics, but um, I, my my main goal is usually on a cap rate. Good stuff. And how are you managing all these properties? We have a, a mix. So we we had this kind of a our own do it yourself type management in house for a while. I did a lot of it. My business partner did a little bit, and and we would split up the responsibilities early on. Um, but then eventually we hired a part time kind of bookkeeper who would just help us check the mail and do stuff. And she was doing such a good job that she grew into other parts of our little uh, self management business. And so she's eventually now doing about ninety five percent of everything we do on like those ni- those sixty properties. And so she'll you know, talk to tenants, take maintenance calls, um, help with turnover. I still underwrite the leases, but it, you can do everything virtually now with, you know, management software. And, and so I'm still involved and I still pay some bills, but, um, you know, I'll probably spend an hour or two per week on that kind of part of it. And then we have a third party manager who, once we, we acquired a 28 unit building a couple of years ago that put us over what we could handle on our little you know, lean property management infrastructure. So we hired a, a, just a local third party manager who's actually done a great job and we'll probably be happy kind of turning over more, more to them as we go. And are you still kind of in acquisition mode where you're trying to acquire an X number of properties or, or doors every year, or is it kind of more maintenance mode at this point? It's more maintenance mode. I, I sort of look at it like a chessboard where, you know, we've got these pieces on the board. We're trying to strategically put them in better places. Or maybe another metaphor I, I like to give is like we're, we're we're cattle farmers and we've got like this herd of cattle and two or three of them get sick every year. We need to kill kill them and eat them for Christmas dinner. <laughs> and so that's like we, we we take out a couple of our properties and. and and sell them every year and then try to like we're doing one right now we sold one that's just too far away it was cedar siding wasn't good low maintenance and so we're selling that and doing a 1031 exchange and buying another property so it's more about like optimizing the portfolio and i could actually see us being uh, fewer units higher lower leverage and then do more lend, private lending and passive like sec, 
you know, uh, passive partner kind of investing as we go. I'm, I'm not as interested in sort of taking over the world, acquiring a bunch of units. It's just um, just other interests and other things that I also want to do. You bring up a good point. Have you invested in, in, in maybe, you know, we can get in this a little bit in your book as, as we get into some of the profiles that, that you've uh, researched and talked with people, but have you invested in the market or in retirement accounts or, you know, in private lending or in syndications or anything else? Or are you 100% my own portfolio kind of strategy? I've, I've definitely, it's a really good question. Like I've, my, my long-term goal is to be more balanced. And so, but, but I was early on, I was very concentrated and leveraged. <laughs> so like going to 2007, we're like all real estate, but a lot of leverage, let's hold on for dear life. You know, that was sort of where we were four years into our four or five years into our business. But, um, we, we, I do have retirement accounts and I started off doing a lot of self-directed, like just, I would loan money to other investors. And so I was very heavily invested in real estate, but I sort of took the philosophy. Like I read Benjamin Graham's book, intelligent investor. And I really like paying attention to Warren Buffett. And he, what I got from them was like, you either need to decide to be like a completely diversified investor who has your money and all, you know, just, everywhere and like this this very very diversified or you need to be a, a super intense like watch all the eggs really closely kind of investor and that's how i started off like this you know the baskets we had of money were like really good they were very good investments i felt very good about them but now as i'm evolving and growing as an investor you know i have retirement accounts with a lot of passive index funds i'd say about 50 percent of my retirement account is in that 50% and some of I'm kind of dabbling in some crowdfunding and, and private lending that way, but also have some other loans, just direct le- private lending to other, other individuals, just individual properties that I've picked up or uh, met along the way. So just in summary, I guess I have the, you know, we have our non real estate or non retirement account portfolio, which is mainly what I was describing before the 90 units and I own those for cash flow and for long-term growth and keeping up with appreciate uh, inflation and then the retirement account I sort of look at is I'm 38 years old. So it's more of a, yeah, I'm not touching this for another, for a long time, decades into the future. And I see it as sort of a backup to my regular real estate plan. Awesome. So you mentioned the uh, the Intelligent Investor is one book that you liked. Are there any others that kind of captured your interest? Yeah, well, within real estate, I think there's a couple investors that I liked. And um, one is a guy named John Schaub, who wrote a, a book, Building Wealth, One House at a Time. And it's, it's been going for a long, it's a you know long time kind of bestseller kind of real estate book. But I, I've gone to classes with John as well. And what I really appreciated about him was he's he's been in business for 40, 50 years. And, and he has a portfolio of probably 30 uh, units, mainly smaller residential and and so I, I I resonate more with that sort of like just get enough properties, uh, make sure they're conservatively financed, make sure they cash flow, and you know often self managing them. And then but then like the next question is all right once you get that taken care of like what do you do with the rest of your life and you know, what matters to you? And so I, I the kind of the non real estate part of it I really appreciated about him too. He was very involved in Habitat for Humanity. He taught classes to help other investors um, become better, and he just has fun too. He has air. I don't fly airplanes, but he flies airplanes and does stuff like that. And so I like just examples like that of people who are not only have a successful business model, but also have just demonstrate that how they're using their wealth to help people and also to enjoy life. Yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit. At the beginning of your book, you mentioned the the fulfillment curve and you kind of have a bell curve. And on one side, you have survival. On the other side, you have hassle. And then you have enough. 
right in the middle. So maybe tell us about that fulfillment curve and how you know when you found that 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 spot. Right. Yeah, I got that. That idea it was definitely not original to me. I read it in a book called Your Money or Your Life um, by Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez. And it's kind of an old school personal finance book. And the idea is that like both personally and with your real estate business in this case, that you know, the, the very first property you buy, the very first amount of money you make at a job, the very first luxury item you get, like it has a lot of fulfillment. Like you're going to enjoy that. There's a lot of happiness to it. But we all had this point and we have to sort of learn it for ourselves because we're all different. But you, you have this point when you, you start buying the next house or the next luxury item or the next thing and you start going down that curve, um, getting decreasing happiness and decreasing fulfillment because typically, at least in my case, has been it, everything you buy has an associated hassle, has an associated management that you have to take care of, has an associated just mind space. Like If you just want to free your mind to be able to think about things and do things, there's always is a cost to every extra thing we do. And so the the ideal, and this is not easy to find, but the ideal for me at least is to find that, that point at the top of the curve where you have enough money, you have enough things to enjoy your life, but yet you're also not overburdening yourself. You're keeping it relatively simple. And that's, to be honest, like that, when we went on our 17-month trip, for example, like money was certainly a consideration, but it was sort of a limited consideration. Like we had enough, you, you could quantify that. But the more difficult part for us was detaching ourselves from our day-to-day lives, like all the commitments I had. I was on a nonprofit board. I was uh, on the planning commission for my local town. I was on a, a couple of nonprofit boards. And then I also had two or three businesses going. And so it was, it was detaching myself from all this stuff and activities and projects, and which is very difficult for me as a type A go-getter entrepreneur, you know, like just to say, wait a minute, let's slow this thing down a little bit. And I have a five and a seven-year-old kid. So like just sitting there and being present with them and getting involved with them. And, and that can be more challenging for me than going out and acquiring another 20 units. And so that's that, that sort of personal side of investing has been one of my bigger challenges, but also a fun challenge to see if I can balance between those two and kind of go back and forth and figure out a good place. Yeah. So just backing up real quick. So what are your properties cash flow for you a year? It's a little tricky because I have a business partner as well who has some equity and capital in the business. But like, I, I, what I can say is like I have about 60,000 bucks a year covers all of our family's expenses. We live in a low cost of living area and that's just plenty. And I, it more than covers that. So like there, there's enough, there's enough cash flow to pay for everything we need, like with my portion of the business, my dividends that I get out of the business. Sure. So, so then when do you know, or when does somebody know that they've reached that point where they say, Hey, you know, I have enough, I've worked hard enough. Now it's, it's time for me to kind of settle down. Of course, that amount is different for everybody, right? Yeah. It's paid on what you're going to spend, but how did you find that? How did you know when, you know, enough was enough or maybe you haven't yet? Yeah, I think I think in real estate, luckily, it's, it's fairly straightforward, like what we just talked about, like, you know, working it backwards and saying, like, what's the number for our family that would and I actually have a few different numbers? So like, what's the basic, basic number where like what's the minimal survival cash flow where, if, you know, not the luxury items, not the travel, not the eating out at restaurants every week, but just like your basics, like you're just paying for housing, paying for your insurance, paying for some some basic necessities, food, like what would that cost? Just first of all, and try to event your goal then to be to produce enough rental income to be able to cover that. That would be like a basic level of like I, I can enough, I can take care of myself. And, but then you also build in, of course, some cushions and like, all right, what would be just a normal number? Like 60,000 for us would be, all right, yeah, we're very comfortable with that. We can do that. 
But then other people might want to have like just even bigger cushion. Like, all right, well, I'm worried about healthcare expenses going up, you know, at 10% a year. And what's that going to be five, 10 years from now? And so like whatever number you choose, you could like build up some more cushion on top of whatever your expenses are. I just think having some kind of number like that is saying, here's what my family needs per year. And then working it backwards, saying how much wealth would I need uh, with a reasonable cash return on my wealth or how many rental properties would I need given a certain amount of cash flow per unit, like just just working it backwards and kind of putting those pieces together and and saying, all right, I've now covered 25% of my number. I've now covered 50% of my number and I've now covered 100%. And like all along the way, that's sort of how I've tracked it, just keeping it as simple as that. And what's really been cool, though, is that when I got to 25% and 50%, I wasn't I wasn't hadn't arrived yet. Like I wasn't felt like I was financially independent, but that was a that was a real thing. Like I could take that leverage of having fifty percent of my expenses covered, and it sort of took the pressure off a little bit. I could take a break. I could take a trip for six months. I could switch roles, switch jobs if I wanted to. And I, I think all of that, like tracking it, working it backwards like that, has a lot of uh, liberation when you you know that you're on a path that eventually sets you free. Right. So let's talk about that. You kind of go more in depth on that on chapter five of your book. Uh, it's called Don't Wait on Happiness. Enjoy the Peak and the Plateaus. And I just want to read a paragraph here. You said, I've realized an important lesson during my climb up the financial mountain. Life can be enjoyed and celebrated at the peak and during the climb and many plateaus along the way. In fact, you may come to love plateaus so much that you see life as just a series of climbs and plateaus. And you kind of have five or six different plateaus or stages during that climb. Maybe talk about each of those and, and how those fall into the journey to financial independence. Yeah, the, so the, the first one is sort of simple. It's like, all right, you start off and you get self-sufficiency. And it's, it's just a point where I think most of us, at least I did, like you, you, you blow past this one where you have, a, you have an emergency fund set aside, you've got a job that's paying your bills. And you know, I, I think for people, particularly like people who are brand new, like they don't have a big net worth yet, they're just trying to grow it can be overwhelming to hear big numbers and look at the top of the mountain. But, you know, when you first hit self-sufficiency where you're just taking care of your, your, your basics, that's a place to celebrate. I mean, you're, you have, you, you're, you've reached something. And so that's sort of the first point. And, but some of the second point, which for me was a really important one was this idea of taking uh, many retirements or sabbaticals. You know, there's a lot of different names for these, but actually like instead of deferring all of your so-called retirement plans where you're going to enjoy travel, you're going to enjoy your family, you're going to whatever you like to do, what you imagine you'll do when you're not having to work as hard, like don't don't wait 30 years for that. Like disperse those those ideas and those plans that you have throughout your life with these little mini retirements. And for me, for example, like travel and studying foreign languages was a big part of what we enjoyed. And so my wife and I, like even when we hit those 25% and 50% of our, our number kind of points in our life, we would save up some some extra money to cover that extra portion. And like in 2009, right in the, like the depths of the Great Recession, when we just kind of got a few things tidied up, we went down to South America and just backpacked around, started in Peru, went to Chile and Patagonia and went camping and ended up in Buenos Aires. And I learned to speak Spanish. I learned, it was just not really practical, just an impractical, fun time. Um, but it was a, the point was I had to go back to work. Like I wasn't done like climbing the mountain, but it was a really nice plateau that made all the difference because when I got back, I was re-energized, I was ready, I had a new perspective on why I was climbing in the first place. And so I, I can't emphasize those kinds of trips enough. And it could be two weeks, it could be a month, it could be five months. I mean, it doesn't really matter the distance, but the point is that we're, we're kind of interspersing those. Um, so that's, that's a mini retirement. 
And as you keep moving up, like one of the most interesting places I got to was this idea of like a semi-retirement. And it might be like, you know, going back to our, uh, our thought about trying to figure out how much income you need every year. Like, let's say you have a really lofty goal and you've, you've got this point where you're covering, let's say you needed a hundred thousand bucks a year to feel like you've, you've got it, you're there and you, you're at 50,000 a year from your rental income or some other passive income. Well, that's, that's not, you're not there, but like, what could you do with that 50% of your income? One example might be, let's say you're in a job making a hundred thousand a year, but you really like just not fulfilled with that job, or you just don't, you like, you would like a different role. You would like to do something different. Um, you, what if you took another job, took a pay cut and you're making 60,000 a year at some job you really enjoyed that just was, you're passionate about, like, why not do that? Because you've got your income coming in $50,000 a year. Yes, maybe you're like making the climb a little bit longer. You could save a little bit more money, but that I guess that's the main point is like life's too short to work an additional 10, 15 years at a job you really don't like if you have worked hard and built some wealth and like you use the leverage of your wealth to do a job you like that's fun, that's passion you're passionate about, or take a mini retirement. And so that to me, like semi-retirement could be a point we could all you know, particularly those of us who like work, who like projects, you know, just living a, a work life where you have a lot of leverage, where if the boss or your role says, hey, we need you to do this. And you're like, well, that's really not what I'm interested in. I'd like to do that. Like that's that's the power of having that wealth behind you to then you know, make dictate what kind of decisions you make. You mentioned earlier about the increasing cost of healthcare. What have you done to kind of navigate that and, and be able to pay for, for healthcare as an entrepreneur and kind of as a, a semi slash early retiree? Yeah, when I first came back from Ecuador, we just panicked <laughs> when I saw my premiums. So that's not a good answer, but the, the real answer is we just increased our budget. Like we, we, right now we, we're on the Obamacare plan and we get an unsubsidized uh, we're, we're not getting a subsidy. So we're, we, we, like in South Carolina, our family of four is paying 1250 bucks a month for a, for the highest deductible plan we can get, which is like 6,500 a person and a $13,000 family deductible. So it's, it's just not, not great healthcare, health insurance. And so we're paying 1250 a month for it. So like I'm temporarily doing that, um, in the future, you know, we've looked at some of the health sharing ministries and considered that some of that I'm not, I'm not 100% confident on those yet. I just don't know. I don't understand the risk and not comfortable with the risk of will my insurance, will my health and health costs be paid in an emergency? And I just, maybe, I, maybe there's something there. I just, I don't understand them well enough yet. But those are alternatives that I have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs and early retirees who are using that. And their, you know, their premiums are 500 a month for a similar family situation. And they have a $1,500. It's not a, they don't call it a deductible, but it's something similar to that. So between those two, that's the only solutions I've seen like within the U.S. But the other, the other alternative, and this isn't like for everybody, but like we were in Ecuador, and you know, even in a so-called developing country, there's a lot of places around the world where they have actually very inexpensive medical systems with the same technology we use. We went and had to get, you know, certain antibiotics and certain MRI kind of machines in the hospitals, and doctors trained in good hospitals, good medical schools in Ecuador for, and we'd have a $30 house call from an MD who would come to our apartment when our daughter was sick. And so like the cost of care is just astronomically lower in many places. And so if you choose to live abroad for a year or two in Europe and South America, different places, you, you can easily save, you know, 12 to 1500 bucks a month just from, from that kind of move. 
Very good stuff. You know, you've, you have a couple kids and they're getting probably to that age where they kind of recognize what you're doing. And, and obviously their friends didn't go live in Ecuador for 17 months. What, what's kind of been the approach that your wife and you have taken with your children in terms of teaching them, you know, maybe about financial independence or about entrepreneurship or even your, maybe your, your general approach to education? I'm still in learning mode. Like I, I love listening to other people and how they teach their kids with money and about life. But we're, my, my only philosophy at the moment that I'm convinced of is that the more time that your kids want your time, like that's, I think that's my impression and what I get feedback. So I'm just trying to spend as much time as I can with them. You know, when they get off the bus, like be there, like it doesn't mean I don't work the rest of the day or do other projects, but like just having the flexibility to be there when they arrive and when they're talking to you about their homework or their, what they did at school, be there to just listen and ask other questions. I think that's like number one. Um, but beyond that, like we're, we're having fun just playing around with the idea of, you know, like what, what do we want to model for them? Like we, we want them to see what we're doing. So like I, like some, if I have asked them another day, like, what does daddy, what does daddy do for work now? Like, what, is, what does he do? And they're just like, well, he just types on the computer. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, that's not good. <laughs> they, they know I have a microphone now and I do interviews too. So like he, he talks to the computer and he types on the computer. So like I said, I think I need to like try to figure out a way to explain this. I'm like, you know, I'm trying to teach people. I'm trying to share, like, you know, you, have, you know how we traveled to Ecuador and did this. Like this is I'm trying to help other people be able to do their own thing too. And so I, I'm, I'm still working on that, but I think more than anything, though, like one of the, the biggest travesties, I think, in my own case would be that they, they get to 18 years old and I've spent all my time like not in their lives. And that's that to me would be like the biggest failure. And so I'm just trying to figure out a way to stay as involved as I can, especially early on when they're five and seven and they still want to be with me and hang out and get involved with their studies, their homework, what they're doing if they're into dance, if they're into something else, like just encourage that and fan that flame and observe them. And I think if I do that, we'll, we'll figure out some of the specifics along the way. You know, one thing that's, that's kind of interesting in, in the approach to early retirement is, is what to do about, you know, a home. Do you pay it off before? Do you take the cash flow from, from where your investments are? What's kind of been your thought process on that, especially as you've kind of been able to, to travel abroad and stuff? Have you paid off the house? Have you not? Yeah, we have not paid off the house, and it's, it's been a little bit of a debate in our household between me, my wife and I. Um, and so far, I've won. I've like I, my wife wanted to pay it off. I said, "All right, let's." let's we have eighty thousand bucks left on a two hundred thousand dollar house, and so like the argument was, I would just feel nice. We have a six hundred fifty dollar payment. It was a fifteen year mortgage at three percent interest, and so just oh, that'd just be feel good and not have any debt. Just the emotional side of it. But for me, like the investor side, I was just looking at 3% interest. Oh, man. And, uh, you know, I'm easily making 6% or 7% on very low risk investments in my own portfolio. <laughs> and so it's like, I just, I can't see that arbitrage, you know, being like low risk here, low risk here, emotional decision. So, so far, we just left it in place and, and just continue to, to keep that money in some of our real estate investments. And so, like, so I would rather pay off like if I had 80,000 bucks sitting there personally that we could pay off the debt, I would rather loan that to my business at 6% and pay off a debt in our business or something. And I don't, I don't know if that's tax optimized, you know, how that works, but I, I do know I'm making a, a very low risk return and um, also reducing risk in my business instead. Yeah. That, that brings up a good point too. How, how leveraged do you usually like to be with, with your real estate portfolio and, you know, everything else in your life, in your financial life? 
when, when we started, we would always try to be no more than 70% leveraged. So it, we did that because we were able to buy, you know, like we didn't have a lot of capital when we first started, but we were still, you know, a hundred thousand dollar property, we would have about 70 cents on the dollar and in, in leverage or, or less because we were buying really good deals. Like we just got them below value. But today, like we, the overall, like I, I'm trying to get our portfolio to a point where it's, you know, below 50% is kind of where we are now and, and maybe a little bit lower, but, but rather than just being across the board, like saying all of my properties at 50% leverage, I don't think that's as smart. Like I would be okay having like 80% leverage with a rate long-term loan on one property and having 0% on another. And, and I, I feel like that's a better, uh, better play. Um, you, you know, you're not, instead of having like, you know, a bunch of mortgages that have 10 years left or 15 years left. You have one that has 30 years left and another that has no debt at all. Uh, the cash flow seemed to be better when I've done that. And I also like just kind of uh, having the lower risk property, no debt on that one, you know, higher risk. I think in a worst case scenario, like we've been through some bad scenarios in 2007 and eight where we had to, we didn't have, we didn't miss any payments to mortgage lenders or anything like that. But if we ever did get in a bad scenario, having an 80% loan is actually ironically easier to negotiate with lenders and get them on the same page than it is having a 40 or 50% loan because they have all the leverage in that case. Yeah. I want to go back to your trip. Um, you know, some people are sitting there thinking, okay, how could I take 17 months off, right, and go do my own thing? So you, you've obviously done very well. You're late 30s. Who covered for you while you were gone, and and how much did you work while you were away? A good question. I had, um, I, I worked about an hour or two per week, and I wasn't doing a lot of acqu- I wasn't doing any new acquisitions. I wasn't doing any like you know moving the chessboard around. It was all just we had our properties, we collected rent. That was it. And um, between my kind of bookkeeper person and a couple of handymen back at home, they would handle like 95% of this, the day-to-day management stuff. So for example, we had we, in the college town, all of the turnover happens in August and all of the lease ups happen in February through June or so. And so like, I didn't, you know, I heard about it. Like I would check in and see how things are going. But my people who were doing that for me, who got paid to do that, we're doing all of that. And they, and then I would just underwrite when they got tenants and they were ready to apply, I would look at a completed application and that I would do that during that hour or two per week. And and so that I had really good people on the ground, like nothing like a 17 month trip can work if you don't have a good team and they haven't built systems as well. And so we had, we had done, we had worked hard on both of those, like surrounding ourselves with good people and then, but also like teaching those people, the systems and the processes that we had built ourselves for example, when you lease a property or when we do a turnover on a property, uh, we had developed these checklists. Like, so when a handyman goes to the property, he gets a checklist and says, here's the checklist on what everything that has to be done. You check the light bulbs, you check the um, underneath the sink, make sure there's no leaks there. You check the shower. I mean, every little, you know, usually those checklists came about because of a mistake we made or something we missed. And so the handyman has a checklist and he turns that checklist in, he signs it. He sends it in with his invoice so that we know we have a record of what what he did. And the same with a painter, the same with a cleaning person. And I actually read a book called The E-Myth. I don't know if you guys have heard of that one um, back when we started our business. And it was one of those aha moments where he said, even though you're a new entrepreneur, um, think about the time when you're going to either sell your business or step out of your business and start building systems and processes right now, like while you're doing everything. And we were doing everything, but start building those systems now because then eventually you're going to hire somebody to do it or hand it off to somebody else. And you now have a process that you can hand off instead of 
just handing them a general role and saying, okay, go figure it out. Like that would be really hard to step away and travel if it were like that. Right. So last couple of questions here uh, before we, we let you go. What mistakes have you made? What, what mistakes, if any, or what advice do you give to people that are starting off here? Yeah, I made a bunch, <laughs> but particularly the, the, the probably the worst one I made was uh, in 2006 and seven, I got really good at buying deals. Like I got really good at finding properties, negotiating them, and it was fun. Like I liked doing it, but I, I didn't have a deliberate kind of long-term strategy. I just, I got really good at doing it, but like, how did all those deals that I was buying fit into an overall structure? And um, I got sloppy on some of my evaluations of properties. So I had some that um, I underestimated repairs by a significant amount. Like I might've estimated 15 grand and it was 20 or 30 grand. And also had some that um, just got lazy on the cash flow analysis. And and so there wasn't some negative cash flow or break-even cash flow when I thought it was positive when we bought it. And so we had to p- sort of pay for those mistakes at the worst time in 2008, nine, and 10. And the, the, I guess the flip side of that, the thing we did well, so we didn't spend a lot of the money we made in 2004, five, and six, and seven. Like we made some really good money flipping properties and, and we just lived relatively frugally and had really big cash reserves that we drew on during that time. And we also just had to hustle and you know deal with turnovers and just make it happen. But it was to go through a two or three year period where you know, kind of a roller coaster of cash flow um, was a, certainly a sort of good feedback on being more deliberate with your acquisitions, doing your due diligence better. I, and then also sort of the whole philosophy I'm talking about today, like not trying to just grow and be big just for growth's sake. Like I got caught up in that a little bit. Um, I borrowed other people's goals instead of saying, like, how will these properties and this business strategically help me and help my business partner do what we want to do in our life? Like how would that financially help us? But also how, and do we want to spend all our time doing that or is this much money okay? And let's just leave it where it is and do something else. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I think you have great advice on, on managing your own portfolio, on your career, on taking, you know, retirement plan or, or mini retirement and, and going along the way. Where can people get a hold of you? I live online at coachcarson.com, and so I have a, a weekly newsletter where I share different practical stories and ideas and, and case studies. And uh, so people, if they want to catch me there, I'd lo- love to connect with you. And also the the book I uh, just wrote, Retire Early with Real Estate, is being published by Bigger Pockets. Um, so it's a, a big, huge online, kind of biggest online real estate community. And they, they also publish books. And so I wrote the book for them. And you can find the book there or after September 13th, it's on uh, Amazon as well. Awesome. And I've looked through it, recommend it. Uh, still, still working my way through, but it has some terrific content, obviously hit on some of that. So Coach Carson, uh, recent author of the book, Retire Early with Real Estate. Thanks for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure, guys. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.